Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. Today's guest is John R. Wood, who is one of the head honchos at the Braver Angels Project, which is a sort of an activist uh, think tank that facilitates discussions across the political divide. He and his cohort help Democrats and Republicans speak about issues in civic-minded terms where they can converge and work constructively towards a better society. In this conversation, John gives me a crash course in black U.S. history and really helps to outline the frustrations and where they're coming from with regards to the disparities and the adversity that the black Americans have experienced from slavery up to the present day. This is very important information to consider and to think about. And in my critiquing of the ways of going forward, I still want to highlight what this issue actually is. And insofar as we can actually get to the facts of the matter and deal with material situations rather than these nebulous terms of privilege and fragility and all that stuff, like clearing all that stuff away and focusing on what is the actual problems and how can we go about fixing those problems. That is the way forward, I firmly believe. So without further ado, here's John Wood. I'm growing the hair back out. Uh, the, the quarantine uh, the quarantine growth, you know, long hair is coming back. <laughs> Just another way in which it feels like the 1960s. So, oh really? Yeah. yeah, I'm getting pretty shaggy myself. Pretty soon, I'll I'll end up uh, remodeling a VW bus and just following <laughs> some grateful married band of travelers somewhere. There you go. Let me know. I'll quit what I'm doing. We'll go on a road trip. What have you been up to? What are you doing right now? Well, I've been busier than I've uh, than I've ever been. Braver Angels. Um, work has intensified. We've become, in lieu of the lockdown, a digital organization, which at first seemed like a devastating blow, but it's actually expanded um, the reach of our programming fairly, fairly significantly, right? Um, and so that was happening. We're launching a 2020 campaign. And um, so we're going to be, uh, we're going to have weekly events, our Brave Rangers debate series of uh, workshops and speakers forum alongside regular schedule for our podcast, articles, essays, videos, etc. Um, all focused in on showing the American people, encouraging the American people to fight right, so to speak, right? With the idea being that, yes, we have to compete in a, you know, in, a, in an election season. We have to duke it out over who we're going to vote for and so forth, but the question is, is do we do so in a way that uh, tears the social fabric apart and destabilizes society? Or do we do so in a way that strengthens, you know, civic civic culture and reforges our bonds as an American people? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that that campaign is getting ready to launch. And I'm uh, it's just sort of, you know, toiling away on that. And that was the case before the killing of George Floyd. Um, mm-hmm. After that, um our work and my own sort of, you know, energies in particular have um, accelerated in the direction of engaging racial issues and engaging the race conversation. So I've got, um, I mean, people are reaching out to me from all over the place. Uh, I think just uh, to, to, to have me kind of speak and advise folks in terms of our understanding of how we got here. And, you know, um, so that's keeping me busy and trying to write and speak more on the subject. And, you know, this is something that was a concern of mine anyway, but now yeah. it's particularly relevant. So I've got a piece coming out in the Wall Street Journal tomorrow um, related to 
related to the moment we're in, sort of looking at the spectrum of black experiences in America and how that ought to inform our understanding of where we're at. And so, yeah, man, I've been working 13-hour days, let me just tell you. (laughs) No, no, seriously, man. I I get up at 4.30 every morning. I go to bed around 10.30 or 11. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty much at it, you know, all day, breaks to feed the kids and so forth. But otherwise, it's just what I do. So, Well, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with me and, ergo, my audience. And speaking about the issues that you are personally invested but also professionally invested in, what are some of the ways that we can be having this conversation about race? What are some of the uh, tools that we can center and what are some that might as you say, tear at the fabric of, of our society. Right. Well, the ones that tear at the fabric of society are, are, um, are easy. Those are the ones that we utilize uh, so, much, uh, so much now. We, we outsource so much of our sort of uh, national communication to uh, talk radio show hosts, to cable news, pundits, etc., that we wind up in a circumstance where you have two sides or multiple sides of a divisive social or political issue. In a sense, having a conversation but having a conversation that is mediated through personalities or structures that are in place essentially to distort or hyperbolize, if that's a word, you know, uh, our vision and understanding of folks on the other side of a given issue, right? And so there's a conversation taking place in that way. It's indirect, but it's real. And yet, because the institutional uh, incentives are set up in a way to uh, catalyze and stoke the flames of polarization and division, well, you know, what you get is what we got. Uh, and so constructive tools for having those conversations, well, I mean, that's, you know, obviously uh, at the heart of the Angels, you know, other organizations too, seek to pioneer. And so, I mean, to just talk a little bit about some of the particular tools we have uh, at hand. I mean, we have a debate format which is focused not on winning or losing, but on intellectual humility. It's a very democratic sort of format in the sense that we bring together people from across the spectrum, not just of politics, but also of expertise, uh, to weigh in on to weigh in on certain topics in a sort of a collective and a collaborative pursuit of truth. So every week, um, particularly starting at the beginning of next month, July, although tomorrow um, we, we're going to be having a debate on defunding the police that should be attended by five or six hundred people or so. But uh, every week uh, from July to the election, we're going to be having a, a debate along along these lines that's, you know, that brings the American people together in this fashion. Since the emphasis is on not just winning, and, not on winning and losing, but on speaking earnestly in terms of what your own point of view is and being open about what you don't know on a given subject, um, it creates the, the possibility for a a competitive interaction on different opinions that yields a collaborative approach to figuring out what the truth is. And if you do that, you actually strengthen relationships, uh, which is what America needs right now. And so that's one tool. We have many others. I think that you're familiar with our Red Blue Workshop model, which uh, was really where Better Angels started. It is a uh, format where we take small groups of folks uh, from the left and the right, blues and reds, as we say in-house, in this case, not to argue and debate about politics, but for each side to speak from the vantage point through mediated exercises, their own personal experience, in terms of why we see politics the way that we do. Uh, and so it is literally, uh, we use techniques of family therapy. It is almost literally marriage counseling for Republicans and Democrats, right? <laughs> for, for, left and, for left and right. 
Um, we have workshops geared towards helping people identify their own internal psychological propensity for divisive or, or generalizing um, and intellectually uncharitable thought, um, thoughts uh, towards towards the opposition. Um, we have skills workshops, which are really based more in sort of teaching constructive uh, communication, rhetorically speaking. Um, but ultimately, I think the thing to understand about all of this is that it grows from a conviction that says that the stability of American political and social life rests upon our our having a civic culture that facilitates uh, that facilitates political discussion and political engagement again in a manner that is constructive and that does not you know shave off the edges of our disagreements but funnels them into a building process right which is really uh, what the founding fathers intended in establishing a constitutional system to begin with. The constitutional framework is about providing checks and balances in a manner that allows our representatives uh, to debate the issues that are meaningful and important, but to ultimately forge from that a working consensus that is sent through the mechanisms of government, and if it has sufficient support behind it through those channels, translates into law or does not. But because the process has credibility, it is tended to work for us for you know a couple hundred years. Uh, but now, with the advent of social media, with the multiplication of you know, talk radio, cable news, and the 24-hour news cycle, and all of these other factors that are leading us to sort of where we are, I think that we're seeing that civil society itself, you know, free, you know, independent organizations, uh, nonprofits, municipalities, um, um, fraternal organizations, there are roles that we have to play at the community level uh, to rebuild sort of this architecture of discourse and uh, mutually respected citizenship that becomes necessary to push that principle that is at the founding of the country, that is in our constitutional origins, further um, into a 21st century context. Uh, And I think without that kind of a movement, we're only going to see a continuing spiral in our ability to communicate, our ability to relate, and our ability to not mess everything up, basically. Yeah, right. Right now, what's happening what I what I see happening across America and probably other countries, but just in America, institution after institution, company, school, etc., municipality, are all pushing a certain sort of teaching, and it's called anti-racist teaching, and it's based on certain uh, you know core principles and core books: Robin DiAngelo, white fragility, white white privilege. And my concern is that this uh, teaching is not oriented towards what you and your organization are oriented towards, mm-hmm. which would be uh, kind of civic mindedness and, uh, like you said, uh, marriage counseling between reds and blues. How do we institute marriage counseling across the racial divide? And is there a racial divide in your mind? And insofar as there is, how do we address that uh, constructively? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that you're right to be concerned about some of these sort of uh, educational or re-educational sort of norms that you're seeing adopted in various uh, institutions. Look, I mean, to, to be uh, to be fair to Robin DiAngelo and others, I do think that there are, there. you can certainly argue that there is such a thing as implicit bias. I think that um, the important thing to note about that, though, and what we take into account in our work is that bias and prejudice is 
well, it's basically a part of human nature in multiple directions, right? If you are not familiar or intimately so with a certain group of people on the basis of their culture, on the basis of their appearance, perhaps, and certainly also on the basis of their, their ideology, um, well, you know, there are reasons why we tend to, we have to sort of prejudge each other or feel like we have to prejudge each other because in a complex social landscape, we have to come to quick estimations in terms of what other people mean, what they're communicating, what the significance of what they're doing is relative to ourselves and our own interests. And even if we don't think consciously about it, uh, or, especially, or especially if we don't, that can lead us to, to you know, certain actions and attitudes that can cause us to do damage to each other. And so, you know, that on a, on a left-right level um, is the basic kind of tendency of human psychology that when, um, when I think, uh, amplified by the polarizing impact of, again, our, our, our media and our political institutions being invested in this division um, leads to another level of social unrest um, that now needs to be co- confronted in a, in a structured way. But with respect to the black-white divide, um, first of all, you ask the question, is there actually a, um, a, a, racial, a racial divide? Um, yes, in as much as in general terms, I think black Americans and white Americans, in extremely general terms, um, live, uh, you know, th- there's a different relative concentration or sort of proportional representation of experiences on one side of that line and the other that correlate to the fact that you're referring to, broadly speaking, different streams of history, different streams of American experience that bring with them differing, you know, generalized socioeconomic realities that you can see represented in the statistics on wealth and income, you know, disparities and, and various other social social stats with which you're, you know, you know all about that. Um, question is what is important to bear to bear in mind um, about about all this and how is it that our work fits into it the problem that i have with what i know at least about robin d'angelo's work and some of the other uh similar sorts of approaches to these things is that on the one hand you know we we also teach that it is important to look within at one's personal uh you know, personal sorts of attitudes and prejudices towards folks on the other side of an issue, and to challenge oneself uh, to to be generous, to be charitable in our interpretation of what other people think and of uh, and of who other people are, right? Both as a means of unshackling oneself um, from the bitterness that can follow that, but also as a means of empowering ourselves as communicators to more effectively express where we're coming from in a certain social interaction. My sense of the other kind of approach to this that you're referencing, um, that focuses on white fragility, and in particular how that's being communicated to white people, is that it seems to sort of lean on this idea that by virtue of, by virtue of, of being white, uh, one is guilty of a of a number of prejudices that are unavoidable, and that account for, I guess, sort of the vast body of uh, injustices that plague that plague society. And I think that there is sort of built into that. And I want to be careful here because I'm I'm not an expert on. I have not read the book White Fragility. I've seen Robin DiAngelo interviewed, and I've seen other people talk about her. So I'm speaking from a place of limited limited authority here, but it seems that in this approach, there's built in this idea that on the basis of a white person's identity, there's a need to atone in a sense 
for that identity because it is it is related to um, these actions. It, it is related to a certain built-in guilt on account of a person being white, which can be confronted through uh, inner sort of evaluation. Um, but the troubling part of that is the linkage of one's identity uh, with the need to seemingly uh, feel some guilt or shame on the basis of that, right? Um, that at least seems to be the tone that comes through so much of so much of the language there, and I think that that's a big part of what Chloe Valdery and others uh, push push back against. My preference is to recognize the fact that human prejudice is universal. Now it may be that human prejudices had particularly consequential and damaging impacts on the black community when when extended from the white the, the, the far more powerful white majority from the beginning of this country's history, you know, to now. And yet there's also a progress of a story of genuine social progress and transformation that needs to be emphasized. I do believe that the United States of America is substantially less racist now than it has been in the past in terms of people's personal attitudes. And I think that there is a danger, as a matter of fact, I've, I've seen this just in my, my day-to-day life, there's a danger of looking at ordinary sort of prejudices or I should say ordinary sorts of misunderstandings between groups of people and attributing that to racial animus where that need not necessarily be assumed uh, as the motivation. Now, that having said that, that is a different, that is a different claim than a claim that would say that, you know, institutional racism, for instance, mm-hmm. is no longer a problem in America. That that to me is 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 a it's a more difficult issue in a sense. Because my own personal point of view on that is that there are genuine systemic problems in the structure of American life that are related to American history and American racial history which have a disproportionately adverse impact on the black community. And this is where there is a divide, I think, in understanding or at least an instinct between the black community and the white community, more generally speaking. Although obviously many black people, uh, the many white people do believe that there is such a thing as systemic racism and they're uh, you know, a minority, but still a good number of, of black folks who don't believe in that, right? So this becomes a very complicated thing very, very quickly. My point of view is that I'm not sure I much prefer the term institutional racism because if we define institutional racism as being the sort of, you know, sort of a deliberate design in the operations of our systems, whether it's criminal justice, economic, healthcare, um, political, et cetera, if the idea is that there was some conscious intentionality that went into the design of those systems that make them function in a way that has a racist outcome. Well, I am, I'm just not sure that that's, that that's true. Um, and if there's some truth to it, I certainly don't think that the people who populate these institutions, that there's any particular reason to believe that most of them are, or any significant number of them are, are racist in any meaningful way. But again, people have a tendency to extend the definition of what racism is. <laughs> and so yeah. if you're yeah. defining racism as just the, pre- the, the, the presence of any particular prejudice or, or discomfort that exists between people of different cultures, well, again, if, if, the, if the definition gets that broad, then it's hard for everybody to not be racist eventually. You know? mm-hmm. um, 
So, you know, definition becomes important, but it's hard to nail down. But what I think is true and what I think black people are reacting to in the death of George Floyd, um, well beyond the incident itself, it is a reality in which, yes, you have these socioeconomic disparities, but it is a reality in which the educational system, I think, functions in a way to where, and you know, you can read books by Michelle Ree, you can read the analysis of many conservative commentators and so forth. Our educational system operates to where, depending on the zip code that you are born in, you are more or less guaranteed to, to have to operate in a school district that, even if it isn't underfunded, it's likely populated by teachers who do not perform at the level of their peers in more affluent communities because that's why they're in your poor neighborhood to begin with. Mm. We operate in a in a context where that educational system itself interacts with the criminal justice environment in which it is not necessarily the case that police officers are just killing black people willy-nilly, but it is the case. And you can see this borne out in the research of scholars like Roland Fryer and others, where um, and just stats that we're familiar with, wherein there has been a higher rate of arrests of African Americans for things like recreational marijuana possession, even though I believe the data indicates that uh, usage across racial groups tends to remain consistent. Um, you have higher incidences, incidence rates of you know police tending to put their hands on folks who are black and Latino and, and engaging in physical sort of altercations, even if uh, they don't result in fatalities or anything like that in the vast majority of cases. Mm-hmm. And so you start cycling black folks into the criminal justice system. And then when they come out, you have you know something on your record. It becomes harder yeah. to, to get a job. Um, that interacts with sort of deficiencies in the educational system. It re- in, these things interact with deficiencies in the healthcare system, where because of you know economic status, people's access to healthcare is limited to Medicaid, li- limited to publicly funded programs, which you know tend not to to provide the quality of health care that you would get with private insurance and so forth. Um, and all of these things work in the mind of people who are experiencing relationships to these different systems, as it, it, it appears as something that grows out of a history that was always sort of structured in something like this kind of way. Now, I, my guess is that some of the folks listening to, to me here might say, but, you know, wait a second. I mean, you know, look, um, where does personal accountability come to this? Where does where does personal choice come in? Uh, and you know, family structure, too. I, I can hear that argument yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, doesn't it matter that, um, you know, black families disproportionately have parents that are unmarried, that fathers disproportionately are not present uh, in, in the home? Um, see, Benjamin, I'm, I'm cycling through a bunch of things here because there's just so much. So much. Yeah, I appreciate I this. Want, I want people to be a bit patient here because I, you know, I, I am... Uh, I'm a conservative, most fundamentally speaking, you know, in terms of my philosophical orientation. And I do believe that at bottom, um, there are cultural uh, shifts that, you know, need to take place um, within the black community that are deeply related to, you know, uh, maintaining, maintaining the nuclear family and otherwise building out our communal ability to support each other um, and to sort of you know, push out the norms of violence that have that have come to 
be so visible and so closely associated uh, with particularly inner city black life that, you know, I, I can hear folks in your audience saying, you know, would seem to be the thing that actually accounts for the fact that so many black people are arrested and thrown in jail and have run-ins with the police. So I'm, I'm very much aware of this, uh, this line of thinking, and there's plenty of, plenty of truth to it. But let's step back a little bit um, in history, right? Because I think that everything I just said about that institutional landscape is true, but I also think that those cultural concerns are also true. And so folks on the left, they tend to look at the operations of systems. Folks on the right tend to look at culture as being the key variable in the health of the community. And But history shows us that there's a relationship between the two. Um, so I'm going to take I'm going to take this way back uh, really quick and sort of work our way forward if if you don't mind. Uh, Please yeah. do it. I love it. Okay. Um, so I sometimes hear it argued that um, well you know yes black people have had it hard in America but they shouldn't complain so much after all the Jewish people had it hard right the Japanese had it hard in Japan after World War II uh, or you know coming to America too but but these groups of people other groups of people. Um, you know, immigrants, uh, folks from various places, they come to the United States or, or in their own countries. They've overcome adversity. They've overcome racism. Uh, the Jewish people are doing wonderfully well. Japan rebuilt after the Marshall Plan and so forth. What is wrong with black people that they can't seem to get it together? But if culture is the thing that provides the sort of soil of communal progress in American life and, and elsewhere, we have to remember that where the black experience begins uh, in slavery, and this to me is the key relevance of slavery. I think too much is made of the uh, relevance of slavery in the, important, in the current context in many respects, but, but, but not in this case. Uh, what slavery was, um, for black people was an uprooting of Africans from their culture, right? Um, I'm half white. I can tell you where my family came from in Europe, roughly speaking. I can trace a history of my European lineage that runs through the progression of the church. You know, I can look back at the Protestant Reformation and, and, and the prior history of Christendom, the history of the British monarchy, the advent of liberalism, I can go back to classical Greece. I can look at the evolution of my broad sort of cultural ancestry on that side of things and see how it ultimately produced an American experiment in which uh, I and the, the particular communities that I am descended from, the sort of wasp, you know, um, sort of Anglo-Saxon, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant sort of tradition, you know, it, it, it leaves me on that side of my lineage with a kind of cultural mooring within which I know that me and folks have a, who have a similar heritage, um, you know, there are practices, traditions, and customs of community and um, and, um, and and cultural resources uh, that allow us, I think, to to build from that. You know, with a particular vision in terms of what the construction of communities and what individual rights and liberties can 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 look like. Um, it's certainly true for the Jewish people. There's a long-standing tradition of religious and vocational um, edu education, community bonding, and those cultural resources are resilient to oppression. So, you know, yeah. uh, you have a group of people that becomes oppressed, but if they remember who they are and how it is they've managed to build from that shared sort of cultural knowledge, um, they always have something to call upon to answer uh, oppression as opportunities uh, open for them. Mm. Um, on the black side of my family, 
you know, my historical memory does not go past slavery. I mean, I can read a bit about Africa and so forth, but really, for African Americans, there tends to be, in the vast majority of cases, very little understanding of, you know, who we are or were as a people, much less, in, you know, pre, pre-slavery, much less any sort of inherited wealth of traditions, customs, shared religions, so on and so forth. All of that comes to be absorbed from, you know, um, well, from white society in America um, during slavery and then after emancipation. But it is a confused psychological state of, state of affairs because really African-Americans, and here's the headline for you, African-Americans are the only group in the United States and you know, one of the only groups you'll find, generally speaking, who had to build a culture and a sense of self entirely from scratch, right? Mm-hmm. No thousand-year history sort of trailing, trailing behind that, you know, this is the case with, with, with Jewish people and others. Um, and, you know, in what history we have sort of begins with this kind of psychological state of affairs where the programming that is sort of coming into us is emphasizing, you know, our inferiority, our sort of natural subjugation, and mm. so And so the pain of the black experience starts there. But the project of building up an actual black community is something that takes place, one, in the absence of self-knowledge, two, in the presence, even after emancipation, of genuine terrorism and genuine and real and explicit institutional racism. I mean, everything from, you know, the terrorism of the Ku Klux Klan to separate but equal laws uh, to peonage in the South, people being forced back into agricultural servitude for basically slave wages and so forth. And as you progress forward in time, I mean, just the, the, the litany, of you know ways in which uh, you know white majorities in the South and in the North, for that matter, uh, tended to narrow opportunities uh, for you know African Americans and really sort of enforce uh, a fearful a fearful existence. Um, you travel forward a hundred years to the Civil Rights Movement, and you have at that time in the 1960s, of course, um, after enormous, I think. After after a legacy of social courage and, and, and progress had been built up by by pioneers in the civil rights movement and others before, you had this this great this great victory this great win um, for equality and justice and the greater realization of American ideals in the triumph of the civil rights movement in the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and many many others right, which did achieve uh, broadly speaking equality before the law right, and so. This comes into the black-white divide here because this divide comes into our common, our sort of understanding of what happened historically. Um, and for myself, as a as a black person, a mixed-race black person who grew up in a very well-integrated community and who was very blessed in his upbringing. I mean, I've never had, you know, especially growing up, I never had a problem with police. I, I never looked at American society as, as racist. And, you know, in, in the most meaningful sense, I, I still don't tend to see it that way, generally speaking. Um, I, I was very much attached to this storyline too, which said that um, in the aftermath of the civil rights movement or with the civil rights movement, equality before the law uh, was achieved and therefore equal opportunity with the integration of American schools was established. And everything that happened after the 1960s was just sort of up to black people to make the most of. And unfortunately, black people didn't manage, you know, haven't managed to to catch up as much as we as we could have if we made better choices, right? And so that that tends to be the storyline that a lot of 
lot of people, particularly many conservatives and, and I think many white folks, are, are operating from. Um, but here's what happened in that that period of time: you did have the um, you did have, of course, the, the the victories of you know um, Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Act, uh, all of these things. All of these things happened, and you know there were positive outcomes for that. But in the 1960s, economically speaking, um, there are a number of things that impacted cities like my own Los Angeles that were particularly uh, damaging to the black community. Um, for one, and I don't say this to to be um, um, well to, to to make any I, I don't I don't say this to cast aspersions on any other group certainly not but immigration policy changed uh, under Lyndon Johnson in a way that brought in for the first time significant waves of immigrants from Latin America and the economic consequence of that was the displacement of African Americans uh, from uh, dominance in the agricultural and the service sectors where they had been where they had been economically very strong at around the same time late 60s particularly going into the 70s and and definitely as we got into the 80s, uh, manufacturing was outsourced to, to China. So I, I'm talking to you here, uh, I may have mentioned Benjamin, uh, from um, uh, South Los Angeles. I'm right outside of Watts right now. I lived in okay. the Georgia Downs projects in Watts for about a year or so. That's where my wife's family uh, is from. Um, these are the largest public housing complexes west of the west of the Mississippi. They were built originally to house African-American workers who came out uh, to work in the munitions factories during the Second World War. Um, to this day, the Alameda Corridor, which runs alongside that, is largely sort of an economic uh, economic sort of ghost zone. I mean, you have some businesses there, but it was once a thriving manufacturing center, right? And so you had the, the disproportionate loss of jobs that uh, were particularly well represented uh, in, the, in the African-American community at the same time as three other things happened. One, you had the decapitation of black leadership across across the country, the assassination of King and Malcolm X and others. And so this brings in a cultural sort of demoralization. Um, you had the advent of the Great Society. And the Great Society, in all fairness, um, in the introduction, the expansion of welfare and public assistance, Medicare, et cetera, uh, in all fairness, the Great Society did some good in as much as it reduced literal starvation, literal hunger in poor communities across America. And, you know, conservative uh, organizations like the Heritage Foundation corroborate this fact. But what it also did was it provided an income, sort of a, uh, you know, a it provided a, a consistent um, but limited income to the black community in a moment when economic opportunities had disappeared at a time when edu genuine educational disparities had not really disappeared because, you know, integration of the schools didn't solve all of those problems or even most of them necessarily. Um, and so you had a certain subsistence lifestyle take root at a time when jobs were disappearing. And then as we pivot into the 1970s, you have the influx, late 60s, early 70s, you have the influx of heroin and then eventually uh, crack cocaine. And this is, I think, the pivotal part. It's a pivotal part of history of, of the story that we just do not see retrospectively. But what that meant was that you had a context in which one, is evidenced by by the Watts riots, et cetera. Well, you already had bad relationships between blacks and the police. Um, you now have a context in which African Americans, so many African Americans, do not have jobs. 
um, and therefore not the social mobility that comes with it. Educational system is still failing. But we do have disposable income, and what we also have with the advent of drugs and the presence of gangs that originally formed to defend the black community from corrupt police officers, right? Um, and this is at a time when the police in America were undoubtedly far more racist than they are now, even if we can still argue that police forces are racist, and I have, I have comment on that. Um, but it meant that drugs came into the community at a moment when these gangs had formed. There's some level of disposable income, but no actual social mobility. And so what happens is the marketplace for, for the distribution of narcotics becomes an actual avenue to wealth and status within the black community. Right. And this leads to the solidification of gangs as sort of institutions in the black community that wind up commanding both respect and fear through wealth and firepower. Again, in the absence of social mobility, in the absence of quality education, in the absence of economic opportunity. But what that also brings with it is a much an even closer relationship with law enforcement, because suddenly the forces of the state are marshaled in a concern for public health, public safety, to 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 strike at this growing volatility with relentless force. Mm -hmm. And in that context, of course, we have the beginnings and the great acceleration of the sort of mass incarceration problem. So, you know, the the black community is suddenly, you know, uh, sort of seized internally by this literally poisonous sort of economy, cornered into it by these different differing structural changes. Um, and so that's where you begin to see the destruction of the black family from two fronts, right? Because on the one hand, you have the literal violence that comes with, with drug-fueled gang warfare. On the other hand, you have the impact of the social, the social safety net operating in such a way to where um, benefits are distributed to black families um, Dispropor uh, in a way that favors families that are unwed, that favors parents who are unwed. So in other words, and Martin Luther King Jr. spoke out against this during his time. Um, you qualify for more in the way of assistance if you do not have a father in the home or if the mother and the father uh, are not married. And suddenly, you know, men are not able in any event to be breadwinners for their families in the way they would like to be because those economic opportunities aren't there in the first place. And so some turn to crime, some don't, but just don't have the resources to be able to take care of their families. And if they stay in the home, if they get married, it's actually a financial burden on the family, right? These are systematic, systemic perversions that, you know, particularly looking back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, work together in a, in a bitter, bitter way. And to just say something about the relationship between the community and the law enforcement, and law enforcement, there was also an era in which you had many, many police departments um, who were on the take themselves. You may have seen the movie American Gangster about Frank Lucas. He was portrayed by Denzel Washington, sort of, uh, you know, Jackie Robinson of organized crime in, in Harlem in some sense. It's a fascinating story. And what you see portrayed in that story is a, is a police de department in New York in which 75 percent of the of the officers were in one way or another siphoning funds from the drug trade, even as they are arresting lower level people for participating in it. I mean, that sort of thing happened in Los Angeles too, right? So that's, this is only a few decades ago. That's within the memory of, of many, many folks. And so you have all of these factors interacting with each other. They're structural factors that are also impacting the cultural formation of the black community, keeping in mind again where we started with the black community. The, the African-Americans, African-Americans in this country are people who were brought here, ripped away from a sense of self, 
culturally speaking, from which every other group in America and, and elsewhere has the luxury of being able to develop their communal identity and to, you know, forge traditions that allow various groups to, to march forward, right, even in the face of, of adversity. So all of these things are conspiring, um, you know, uh, as we as we move from the 60s, 70s, and 80s into the, you know, and into the into the early early 90s. Now, you know, what's also happening across this period of time is that Americans, I think, really are becoming less racist. Um, Dr. King and the nonviolent movement, James Baldwin, um, I mean, other folks, they just became lionized as I as 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 innovators of of high moral american idealism right in the popular imagination of the country you had the integration of of institutions across the board in american life um universities academies are no longer keeping out black students you have affirmative action programs that come into effect that are just you know begging folks to to to, to come in hollywood uh increasingly over time embraces you know, the vision of the black community, representation, a vision of America, more more to the point, that is multicultural and that is meant to, you know, allow us all to see each other, you know, in one another, regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of creed. And so America at this time, looking at it from the outside in particular, looks less racist, actually is less racist in terms of how people, I think, emotionally feel. Even in the South, you know, you have a new South that starts to that starts to be born. I mean, people look at their own history as Southerners. They see the injustices that, you know, maybe their parents and grandparents participated in. And, you know, it's a difficult psychological thing uh, for them, for Southern white folks, you know, coming to terms with that, with that history. Um, but you still have, you know, an easing of, of, of uh, tensions in, in, in many respects, at least, you certainly have a, an inward desire on the part of many Southerners uh, to atone for that history. A Southern liberalism kind of springs up, springs up out of that. And uh, the church, the evangelical church, you know, it's it's not today, you know, it's it's still largely segregated. But there are faith-based relationships that happen, uh, that grow, you know, between the you know the Southern Baptist conventions and and uh, you know various Protestant denominations in particular on both sides of the racial divide that defy the separation that existed there before because you know the church embraces the notion that we're all made equal in the eyes of God, and so all of those things conspire to show us an image of America that is coming to think of itself as genuinely more tolerant and inclusive, and it actually is in its attitudes. But that doesn't negate the fact that these systematic processes are still continuing, you know, largely as they were. So let me give you an anecdote. I've given you that history. Um, I mentioned the fact that I myself as a, you know, biracial black man grew up in America in a way to where, you know, me living in Culver City, California, which is where the motion picture industry is located in, in Los Angeles, uh, where the actual recording studios tend to be. Um, you know, I, I grew up thinking, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. has always been, remains my moral role model. I grew up thinking that the great problems of racism in American society were largely solved with the civil rights movement. I trusted my teachers, I trusted our local politicians, I trusted our police officers, because I never felt excluded or mis or abused by anybody, right? Um, I, I can faintly remember um, the Los Angeles riots, though, 1992, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. 
but we've been five and a half years old. And when I say faintly remember, I really do mean faintly. It is just sort of a shadow in my mind. But I remember there was there was a week or so, you know, there are several days when I was aware of the fact that something strange was going on outside. And uh, my mother and my father, um, so, you know, again, we lived in, lived in Culver City. My mom went to work on one of those days. And, you know, she stepped out the door, and my father was fearful and nervous. And, you know, more recently he told me, he said that was the scariest day of his life because she went to work, and he said he thought to himself that he would never see her again. He said, my God, he said, why did I let her go? That's what he said to himself. Um, but she came back later that evening, and, you know, she was fine. She turns out she did get close to uh, riots that were taking place at uh, the looting of the Fox Hills Mall in Culver City. She worked just down the street from there. So she saw, you know, some action. But she came home. She was fine. Um, my wife, meanwhile, is four years old, living in the Jordan Downs. Her earliest American experiences were in the heart of a war zone, literally. <laughs> I mean, she remembers the gunfire. She remembers the explosions. She she remembers seeing people, you know, I mean, she she saw shooting. She saw death. She remembers the law enforcement's, you know, feeble efforts and authorities' feeble efforts to try and get people to call, calm down. She saw fires being set, buildings and businesses being destroyed. That's where her American experience begins. And over the course of her upbringing, you know, in the 1990s, even though ag- in terms of aggregate aggregate statistical terms, you know, police and black violence and gang violence generally diminished over the course of the 90s. But it's still, even at its low point, is so radically out of proportion to the to the, what the, most of the rest of America experiences and to what I experience that, you know, in the course of growing up in the Jordan Downs projects, which is, you know, which was considered for a long time the most violent area in the state of California, where much of the black community is, you know, a, a, within South Central Los Angeles, where black community in California is concentrated here and in Oakland, she's seen more death and more um, she's seen more people die than a lot of folks who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, um, that's that's her American experience. That's her black American experience. And couple this with the fact that she's seen failing educational, the failing education system. She knows that the schools are not are not keeping up um, for most people growing up where she grew up. Um, uh, you know, the only white people that you encounter in those areas are police officers, ambivalent and overworked social workers and, you know, overwhelmed uh, educators. Um, who are, you know, themselves just, just uh, beaten down by by the challenge that they're confronted with, and so coming up in that kind of a context, coming up in that kind of a landscape, uh, for folks, you know, in L.A., Chicago, Detroit, parts of New York, elsewhere, um, and looking backwards at the history I've just described to you. And thinking about the fact that you know the way our systems operate, even though they've been reformed in many ways you know, still sort of locks people into this kind of, you know, cycle of futility. When you see George Floyd being killed, I don't think that what people are responding to is just the death of Floyd himself. To me, I think that whether we think about it consciously this way or not, the killing of George Floyd, that officer's knee on his neck, becomes a symbol for the entire story I've just recounted for you, for that large segment of black America, not all, you know, but for that large segment of black America that has lived a life that is, you know, closer to my wife's experience than to mine. Mm. And so the black white divide in America, it's, you know, on a surface layer, you see it in a divide in our social and political opinions. 
It's much deeper than that. It is a divide and experience that colors, no pun intended, uh, a division in our understanding uh, and our interpretation of history. And so, you know, in trying to understand how we tackle, you know, that tremendous gulf, right, in, in appreciation and comprehension, today, what has to happen is we have to build up the resources and the structures that enable us to share our honest uh, our, our, our honest stories so that we can develop some empathy as human beings. Uh, and from that empathy, from the, you know, we have a phrase, by the way, at Brave Rangels called uh, patriotic empathy. It's the idea that your, your, your love of your country is demonstrated in your concern for your fellow American. And in building up that that ethic of patriotic empathy, move from that to a discussion over our empirical reality uh, that takes into account these differing social psychological backdrops and that allows us having you know, begun to move past the idea that we are enemies just by virtue of our differing identities, uh, to move into a conversational space to where we can really begin to discuss uh, the particular um, material aspects of our reality that can yield sort of, you know, policy and cultural progress without our feeling that we become socially or psychologically, that we become threatened by entertaining certain people or certain arguments on an identity basis because we connect certain points of view with um, sort of a, a, a tribal an, a built-in tribal division that should shut down certain conversations before they begin. And so, again, that's something that we have to build up on the civil society level. Uh, it's something that we have to build up by circumventing the political parties, circumventing, you know, many of the major media outlets. And, and you know, by the way, I would love to go on more of these these outlets. They're good people. No, seriously, they're good people who work at, you know, CNN, who work at Fox, who work at, you know, who work within the political parties. The problem, to get back to structural analysis, is that the incentives of these institutions are geared towards division. So even if you as an individual, you know, can set a good example within them, and I and I hope that people do, you know. I mean, I look at a guy like Jake Tapper, and I, I think that Jake, for instance, he frequently says things that seem to cut a little bit against the grain of the environment I see going on around him. And yet I feel like, you know, I, I see a guy like that, I think he's trying, you know. And um, it doesn't mean there are not a million things you can say to criticize him, but – you know, I, I see people trying in different places. We, we, we know that the culture we've built up is killing itself. Um, so, you know, so we want to work in, within the institutions that exist to the degree that we can and with them to the degree that we can. But our powers of innovation need to be applied to building up new channels of interaction uh, that can, again, reforge the civic core of American society. And if we it's, can it's... rally the American people in that direction, uh, we can progress from there towards Dr. King's vision of a beloved community. And that's what we want to do. Okay. It seems to be the case that you, uh, you love America. You love the core founding principles of America. That, that's just the, please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, oh, it seems like people can look at America, especially having gone through the experience that you just related to us. They can look yeah. at America and say, we need to tear it down at its root we need to completely dismantle the entire system because the entire system is what gave us this experience how do you 
how do you make the case that actually we, we go back to the roots of this country and we refine them and we purify them and we we clean them up and we see them for the fundamentally uh, constructive uh, philosophy that they are? Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, look. Um, you're familiar with Steven Pinker. He wrote a book called Better Angels, and he's done other work that, you know, seems to demonstrate from a statistical vantage point that this, in many respects, is the most prosperous and peaceful time to be alive in human history. Although maybe a little less so now than when he <laughs> than when he wrote that book like a year ago or <laughs> whatever it was. Um, but, you know, the uh, so you know, I I, I could say that it. <laughs> I, I could say that it would be good for people to appreciate just how much collective human labor has gone into building up the institutional edifice of modern civilization and American society in particular in a manner that allows us to enjoy unparalleled prosperity, even in this dire moment, you know, relative to other folks in the world and in history. Um, that gives people that has been able to secure not just that material prosperity, but political liberties that give people the right to take to the streets and protest the injustices that do still remain, right? But I think that particularly speaking to a black context, a deeper argument um, that I would make and that I say very much as a black man is, you know, goes to the fact that, you know, African-Americans, just like other folks in this country, have strived, struggled, and sacrificed on both foreign battlefields and American cities um, to preserve the freedoms and the liberties that this country uh, has long professed and indeed was founded to stand for. And that even if this nation was founded in the crux or in the, um, you know, in the context of a moral contradiction, the moral leadership and the social leadership of so many African Americans have been what has pushed this nation to something more closely approximating the pure sort of idealism that Thomas Jefferson in his words crystallized, even if in his actions he contradicted, right? And so therefore, the the moral, political, material progress of the United States of America as a whole is also in part um, the inheritance of black America. The American project is ours, uh, just every bit as much as it is uh, anybody else's. And to want to uproot that, root, stem, and branch for any you know black person or white person that might take that cynical view of it, is to undo that inheritance. It is to undo that heritage um, that you know uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, uh, the New York Times has I think rightly observed, uh, one that Black America has helped make more and more real. Why would we discard the richness of of our legacy? Uh, by tearing everything, by, by wanting to tear things down entirely. Reform is a different conversation, you know. Um, there are all sorts of things that need to be reformed, and that is the conversation that we need to figure out uh, the proper way to have. But let's not be anti-American to the extent to which we believe that this country is not for us and it's not for certain groups of people. The very premise of this nation particularly as we've built upon these original ideals over time, has pointed towards the idea that the United States of America is for any and everybody who believes in freedom, justice, and equality. And if we can hold fast to that and recognize our historical relationship uh, to those ideals, then from that we can inform a, fu a future that, again, strives towards Dr. King's promised land, that idea of the beloved community. Because in his mind, too, you know, the realization of the beloved community was the realization of these founding American ideals. 
that was the end game, you know, of the nonviolent movement. And it outremained the case today. You, um, you keep on getting stronger and stronger every time I hear you speak. <laughs> It's just more and more boviating. It's one of the. <laughs> I know you have to leave at two here, um, so I want to just thank you so much for uh, joining me today, giving me your time, and uh, and actually working towards these goals in a real way that that uh, reframes the conversation and into one where we're all collectively and patriotically coming together to try to figure out how to how to fulfill the promises of our forefathers. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Benjamin, and I'd love to get you more involved, too. I appreciate the work that you do in the space that you've held in the online uh, online zone. Um, you know, uh, you're one of those guys who I think sets sets the right example, and I, I try to follow suit. So thanks again for the opportunity. Well, thanks a lot, John. We'll, we'll talk soon, okay? Okay, let's do it. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.